the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be talking to State Senator Matt Dolan concerning the state of Ohio and how we're doing in the various issues pending. Uh, Matt, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. As always, uh, you know, with the big issue of the day, the COVID-19 virus has been affecting every aspect of our lives. Uh, how's it affecting us uh, down from the perspective of the Ohio Senate? So, um, yeah, obviously COVID is affecting everyone. I'm going to, uh, you know, th- this past week, the Senate took a vote uh, on one part of the COVID, and that is, uh, what is the governor's role in the execution of health orders and what is the legislator's role? And there's always been this talk since the COVID pandemic started that maybe the governor is acting outside of his power. And uh, I guess I'd like to address that, that the governor is acting as an executive should act. He is relying on the facts that he sees are the best and making decisions on those. The legislature has always had the authority since the very beginning of this pandemic to introduce any bill that they would like to be able to counter any of the orders that took place. To date, that has not been done. Uh, This past week, the Senate introduced and passed a bill that I voted against. I voted against it because I don't want to give anybody the illusion of that we are doing something when we're actually not. I am probably more supportive of what the governor is trying to accomplish than maybe most. Uh, I don't like uh, that. You know, I would have done things differently at the beginning, but we do have a lot of businesses up and operating. Uh, we need to do more to help the restaurants and the bars, and we certainly need to do a lot more to help the service industry. But we are projecting on the right path. So when we passed a bill this past week that basically says um, if the legislator doesn't agree with it, we can pass a concurrent resolution to challenge the health orders. Now, that may sound good to people and say, oh, finally, someone's taking on the governor. In reality, a concurrent resolution is nothing more than a statement of intent. It has no effect or authority in law. The Constitution makes it very clear that if, if the legislature wants to enact a law or challenge orders, they must do it by a bill. So my point is the balance of power remains in place. If you don't like what the governor is doing, then follow the legislative path and challenge it and have hearings and have an up or down vote. So it, I, I want to be able to address that up front because, you know, where we are headed with this pandemic is a three-legged stool. And this is my approach the whole time. 
is that one leg of the stool needs to be making sure our healthcare system is uh, equipped and able to handle COVID patients and their regular patients. Two is to make sure individuals are uh, healthy and safe and take the responsibility necessary to do so. And three, make sure our economy remains open, our businesses remain operating to, uh, so that the quality of life remains. At any point during this time, there has been imbalance in the three, and I have always pushed back to get it back to, to a balance. We need to open up. If you look at where Ohio is compared to other states led by Republican governors, we are more open than states. We are more open than Florida. We are more open than Texas. Uh, but that's not always how it comes out. Um, so this is frustrating. Uh, I don't, I, you know, obviously I wish it would be over. The fact that we can't give an end date is very frustrating, both an end date to when these orders are going to be done and when the virus is going to go away. Um, so I guess that's a preamble as to on the, on the, the uh, execution side of the pandemic. Uh, I'd be happy to talk about some of the things the Senate has done to help uh, businesses and communities and individuals through the pandemic, but I want to make sure that if you have any questions on what I just said, that we have time for that. Oh, sure. Well, it's very important because, uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, is that the pandemic is affecting every element of our lives, uh, family, social, business, religion, schools, and I can just go on. Uh, it, it permeates. In the Senate and considering these uh, these bills that would address what and how the state should react, I think you would be in the forefront of listening to arguments where we have on one side the science of the pandemic and how to control it and minimize it versus the other side, which is the economy and the politics. And, and with that, it, it seems like the economic side and the political side is subject to debate and negotiation. The science side many times is not. The pandemic is here. We have to live with it, and we have to normalize with that. Do, do you think we're normalizing to some degree? It's been, what, six months now, and uh, we know it's out there, and we know it's going to continue to be out there until an effective vaccine is out. Uh, how does it so, look from a projection standpoint it, from your state, your position? Yeah, so normal, uh, normalizing, I completely agree with that approach. Normalizing is, is, is like beauty. It's in the eyes of the beholder. You know, is it normal that we have to go out and wear masks? Well, no, of course, it's not normal that we do that. But in order to make sure that our economy remains open, in order to make sure that we can go out to dinner, we can now go to movies. Uh, you know, people can go to their jobs. That's the trade-off that, that needs to be made in this new normal because, I agree, the science is suggesting that that is one of the better ways to prevent the spread of the virus. Now, everyone's got articles that says it does and doesn't, but, you know, maybe, I, Nick, I come from a, a unique perspective. Not only am I, in my work as a legislator have I studied the science, but my family, as you know, is involved in, in baseball, and we have been on numerous calls with uh, uh, scientists and epithologists all over the country about how to handle 
the operation of baseball during this pandemic. And the advice that we're getting is very similar to what we're doing in Ohio. You know, stay six feet mm -hmm. apart. Mass gatherings are, are, are not in the books right now. So I believe that Ohio is, is getting back to a, a, a degree of normal. Will it take some responsibility and personal sacrifice on half the individuals? Yes, it will. Um, but, you know, the, the, we're good. Well, excellent. Well, well, as you mentioned, you know, you're in the unique situation because of uh, Major League Baseball. Uh, to make it work, it has to essentially have tamed the COVID-19. And to make our economy work, we have to tame similarly the COVID-19. And uh, along the same lines of taming it, we have to make sure everyone feels comfortable about the whole idea of, of being safe to go out there. Now, uh, Ohio, comparing it to other states, seems to be doing quite well with regard to our numbers. Uh, yet we're facing the fall and the winter where people are going to be brought indoors, no more patio dining and that kind of thing. Uh, what have you been hearing from the science side about uh, how well we might be doing and what we might expect during this fall and winter season? So the science will tell you that there is a great concern about the fall and the winter because of exactly what you just said. Uh, and that's where uh, my role as a state senator, I am working with the governor to make sure that we don't we keep that balance I talked about, that, yeah, people are going to be going inside now more. And, and so individual responsibility is going to be even a greater uh, focus so that, as you correctly put, we can survive and live and manage through this virus. If we decide not to exercise individual responsibility, then we run the risk of having a, a further uh, you know, spread of the virus, which will cause the governor perhaps to think about things that we all don't want him to do. We cannot and will not afford another shutdown. But we can't ignore, as you say, that the virus is there and we have to manage through it. So recognizing that there will be a change um, and then, then that, that change could bring more people who get sick. But again, that third leg of the stool to make sure our healthcare system is able and up and operating, and they are. We are not taxing our healthcare system to the point where we can't afford people to get sick. Uh, if you do get the virus, unfortunately, and you do require hospitalization, you will get good, great care. Equally, if you have a sickness or an injury or a health condition separate from the virus that needs hospitalization, you will get the care. We have, we have now reached that balance where the hospitals can do both. Uh, we weren't there oh, early in the virus. Very good. Well, one, one thing I like seeing is that it appears that with the Major League Baseball situation by comparison, that they have been able to at least contain the virus and tamed it to the degree that they can still function. And that's a good thing. That means we might be able to do that. And we'll see how it spells out and plays out in the schools. We're going to take a short break. We're talking to Ohio State Senator Matt Dolan about COVID and about what's going on in Columbus and, and how we're going to fare over the next couple of months here. We'll take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to State Senator Matt Dolan. Very happy to have Matt with us this evening talking about what the state of Ohio is doing uh, under these trying times. Matt, again, thank you as always for joining us. Thanks, Nick. You know, we're talking about the, the virus. It's, by the way, on The Advocate, that's all we've been talking about since March, uh, So, because it's been so permeating of everything. But uh, we were just talking about uh, sort of the example of controlling the virus with Major League Baseball and uh, keeping it as virus-free as possible. But uh, we're opening up schools now, and, and students are starting to go back in person, and all of the appropriate uh, preventive measures, all of the blocks between the virus and students and teachers that are being recommended are being put in place by all the school districts, as the case may be. How does that look from the state of Ohio? How does that look from the Senate point of view? What do we, what do we see in so, the next several months? So I, um, I think because of the extraordinary efforts that administrators, superintendents, teachers made last spring, to convert to digital internet learning or remote learning on a dime, uh, I think the schools are, were better prepared to understand how they could educate their kids remotely. However, I have been always advocating that we need to go to in-person schooling, and we did get the governor to say, I will leave it up to the local school districts uh, to make their own decisions. I think most of our schools were going to go back full-time in person until the local health department uh, issued a statement saying they, they strongly recommend you don't start in school. And that puts superintendents in a box. How do you go against your local health department? Um, so uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of superintendents scaled back and they went to remote learning right away. As you said, schools are starting to open in person. Uh, I, I feel comfortable that it's going to work. I think the teachers are very alert. The superintendents are very alert. We have provided sufficient dollars to them to make sure that whatever changes, physical changes they need to make in their schools to keep the kids safe uh, can be done. There's plenty of, of hand sanitizer. There's plexiglass where it needs to be. There's additional uh, class space if they need it. So it's not ideal. But I think kids learn best in person, and, and again, the, they will make the necessary sacrifices to get it done. Now, with that, I do have a dispute with the governor. I do not think when you're sitting in your, on your, at your desk and the desks are appropriately six feet apart, I do not think the kids need to wear a mask at that point. When they're exchanging classes, when they're getting on the bus, I think they should, but I don't think they should. So we're still working on that to just allow the students while they're in their seats working on their academics, take the mask out of the picture and just let them focus on what they're doing. Put the mask back on when you're interacting with each other in the hallways or on the bus. Um, so. We're, we're, we're getting there, or at least leave it up to each school as to whether or not they want young kids to have a mask or not. Since this is being talked about in such detail at the legislative level, and the CDC just came out uh, a couple of days ago with a position concerning how the virus will aerosol 
and then they immediately turned it around and, and put it back to the six feet. Before the Senate makes a law or a resolution concerning how the COVID spreads, uh, what's the feeling about the aerosolization of the COVID so that if, if we would go with your recommendation, have the students sitting six feet apart, uh, do we know that they'll be safe because the virus won't float further than six feet in a classroom where the kids are there for days or hours at least? So I'm not a scientist, so the answer is I, you know, I don't know, and I know the CDC has done that a few times, issued something and then issued, you know, reversed themselves. But to your point about whether we as a legislature do something, that's exactly my point. We won't, we shouldn't, we have the ability to do something. We just, no one has done anything yet. And, and I haven't because I'm generally supportive of what the governor has done. But if someone wanted to challenge the mask order, they can introduce a bill and exactly what you just said, we would have an open, thorough discussion in a hearing with the, with the experts coming in with the scientists coming in, and we could ask them questions. And we could make a decision as Ohioans the answer to your question. Maybe they still need to wear a mask because the aerosol is still a risk six feet apart. Maybe the science will show us that it's not. But my point, Nick, is um, we have all this ideological talk going about, about abuses of power when we haven't even exercised the power that we do have to make those decisions. Right. Well, I see we have the machinery in place to make the right decisions <clears throat> by using that machinery to bring in the science. And I think we need more of that because all too often we just hear these conclusions that are based on politics rather than science, when it has to be the result of an integrated collaborative effort. So hopefully that, that will happen exactly more frequently. That's exactly my position. That's exactly my position. Let's make well, the decision. I, and I love it. Thank you. <laughs> It, it seems hard to get people to get to that position where they can actually, uh, in my opinion, be reasonable to integrate all of these different issues to make the best decision. And there's no guarantees that anyone will ever make the right decision, but all we can do is hope for the best decision based on all the facts and circumstances in a, in a Nick, very lawyer-like way. To, right. And then I'm a lawyer by training as well. But just to understand. <laughs> I understand and empathize with, with the frustration this is causing, both at a personal level, at an ideological level, at a fear and anxiety level, because this is something we, we've never faced. There's nobody on the planet who's ever faced this before. And it's also one of those crises where we don't know when it ends. Uh, and, if, and we need to provide a level of hope that, that we can mitigate this. But there's no other crisis where you can say, well, we just need to make it through another month, and then this will all be over. We hope that's the I case. hear you. But we don't know, and that creates a lot of anxiety for, for folks. And I, I understand yes. that. So some, some of the anger towards me, I, you know, I, I respect because that's what I signed up for, but I also know where it's coming from as well. Well, we do need to collaborate with each other and basically uh, put all the information in and apply reason and common sense to it to come up with the best answer. And uh, you're correct. I, everyone I talk to is just absolutely fed up with the coronavirus. 
They're tired of hearing of it. They're tired of wearing masks. They're tired of being unable to do most of the things that they can do. And now coming up with the winter, coming up with the holiday season, uh, and uh, the recommendations were all aching to have this coronavirus resolved. So I guess people are looking toward the vaccines to see how that's going to work. Is there anything from the state level with regard to distribution of a vaccine if and when one becomes available? So uh, I, I am not involved in any of that. I, um, so I do not know if, this, if we will have a vaccination plan separate and apart from uh, what, what the federal government tells us. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't. I assume at some point we will engage in that conversation, but as of right now, I've not engaged in that conversation at all. Understood. Well, there's no vaccine that's ready for distribution yet. So uh, we, we just have about a minute to go, but real quick, is there anything happening on House Bill 6 funding that's out, and that's dealing with the reimbursement for the nuclear power plants? Right. The bailout. So, uh, yeah, I mean, both chambers, Senate and House, are, are – uh, discussing openly in, in hearings uh, whether to repeal House Bill 6. I voted for House Bill 6, and maybe another show I can outline why, or if you've written my office, I've given you a letter why. But we need to repeal it because the process in the House was completely tainted. Uh, uh, you know, the Speaker is now under federal indictment. And in order to restore public faith and integrity uh, in how we pass laws, we need to start over uh, on that bill and make sure that if we, if we reach the same conclusion, at least we did it in an honest, open, and transparent way and not under the cloud of federal indictment. Again, it sounds uh, reasonable and, and a good way of approaching that. And uh, I, I see that Attorney General Yost has filed a lawsuit trying to stop the, the fund payout at this point, and maybe until this gets resolved at the legislative level. But uh, in any event, uh, Matt Dolan, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us tonight and giving us a report from what's going on in, in the state Senate. So we'll have to have you on again and talk about more maybe in another month or so. All right. Thank you, uh, Nick, for your time and uh, great question. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. Back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. And in the next two segments, we're taking a break from COVID-19. Finally, uh, we're going to be talking about something that has been with us for many, many years. And I'm not talking about the person, but I'm talking about the music that we've been living with. And it's uh, the music that has been for many of us. I think you're right. <laughs> yes, you're right. Well, that's a, the familiar voice. Uh, we know him as Cousin Brucey. Uh, he, his real name, his full name is Bruce Morrow. He's been in rock and roll and the music that we love since the beginning of it. So uh, cousin, can I call you Cousin Brucey or call you Bruce Morrow? What do you prefer? Oh, no, you call me Cous, Cousin Brucey. When I, re I know you as Cousin Brucey. Cousin Brucey. And, and I'm Cousin Nick. Okay. Hey. Thank you, Cousin Bruce. What an honor to be called Cousin Nick by Cousin Bruce. That's historic. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you, you have met everyone in rock and roll. And I was just uh, going over the kind of music. You know, growing up in the 60s, 
we we had of course the Beatles with the British invasion. Prior to that, we had rock and roll with Elvis Presley and, and rock. We had Motown. We had beach music. We had folk rock. We had it all at once, and truly formed the uh, soundtrack of, of many of our lives. It was before we had videos. We didn't have music videos, so we just had our own memories to go back to these songs. Uh, tell us, you know, how how did you start getting into this whole area? Well, Nick, Cousin Nick, I was very lucky. I grew up probably in the first uh, generation of rock and roll babies. I a mentor, my guy that I listened to, and I'm sure you're familiar with, and everybody in Cleveland area, obviously, Alan Freed. Of course. In New York. And Alan came to New York. We never He sounded like our new music. He used to pound on telephone books, and his... Uh, Speech was like the cacophony and the, the beat of rock and roll. So I sort of uh, went up and I used to sit outside the window at a radio station, WINS in New York, where he held court. And one day, while I was watching, he noticed me because he saw I came up several times and he motioned to me to come in. I got very nervous. I got scared. I went in and he greeted me and I told him my name. And he says, you want to do this? And the, I said, yes, sir. I love what I love what you sound like, and I love it. He says, "Don't. This is boring. Go into your father's <laughs> business." So I, I am very happy. I did not listen to Alan Freed. I did okay. I did okay. And I, I've been doing this ever since. And I, I love Nick. I love what I do. And uh, the, the shows have changed greatly over decade, decade and a half. And now it's really more of a variety show than somebody just playing records and telling time and giving station breaks and weather reports. It, it's really become part of people's lives. So I do a lot of talk on it. We do a lot of telephones. We have interviews on it. And, of course, the mix of the music and gadgets that I use on the show. So it's a really become a variety thing. Well, you know, we've been listening to you on Sirius XM for oh, about the last, what, 10, 15 years, I think. And uh, yeah. that's how many of us out here in the rest of the country have gotten to know you. Uh, t tell us about uh, your transition now. You, you left Sirius XM, and where are you going? All right. Let me tell you why I left. I was there for 15 years. It was 15 very good years. It was nice. It was fun. But one day I woke up halfway through, maybe a little more, and I realized there was something missing, Nick. I I wasn't I wasn't satisfied. I mean, I was doing very well. We had a tremendous. It was I was just not pleased with what I was doing. I'm a broadcaster. I miss my local feeling very much. At the Sirius XM, extremely um, uh, successful. It's a corporate thing. So I, I coined a new phrase, corporate radio, and that's what I was doing. I wasn't doing my feel human type radio. So I left there uh, on Saturday nights. They call me from their car. One day, a guy comes over to me, a man says, you know who you're talking to? I said, no. He says, that's John Castanides. He just bought WABC. I said, what do you mean? He bought a, a person, bought this monster power radio station. One guy bought a radio station like this. Not only that, right. he wrote a personal check. I mean, do you hear what I just said? You know, 
Uh, Nick, he wrote a personal check card. You and I will go to a, a department store and write a check. So uh, we started talking a little more seriously than his request for Elvis and the Beatles. And uh, I told him, you know, I think I'm ready to make a move after 15 years. And uh, about a year later, he called me, and we sat down and had a serious talk. A day later, I signed the contract with him, and here we go. So, And I've been on the air now a couple weeks. I'm on the air Saturday night from 6 to 9 o'clock Eastern. And uh, it's at 77, and there's lots of ways of receiving it. Because it's not only local. Uh, there's no such thing as local anymore, as you know. We now reach all over the country. The smallest radio station now has the power of reaching this globe uh, with this internet right. and, and other streaming abilities. So I went on about two weeks ago, and i got to tell you something. I, uh, I am so happy. I have that feeling again of radio. I don't know if you knew, Nick, but I own several radio stations. I'm an owner. And, uh, I sold them. I own a TV station down in Atlanta. And I own many radio stations all over the northeastern and the seaboard. Um, so I, I, mean, I, I, I know my radio. I know what I want to do. So now I'm on the air. I have this feeling of I know what's going on in my city, and I'm letting everybody else know. People are kind of curious about New York City. And I finally achieved, I think, the full circle of my career, and it's a very long circle, large circle, plenty to go. I think I've achieved what I want, and I have that local feeling, and yet I'm reaching all over the nation thanks to streaming and thanks to uh, Internet and apps and things like that. So you have your local your local audience, and we have a pretty large local audience. You know, when I was on the air, I left uh, WABC, Nick, about 46 years ago, believe it or not. Isn't that wild? I was, I was only three wow. of you. Time flies. Yes, it does. It really does. And... Uh, <laughs> We were reaching, you know, at night when I went on the air, the ionosphere goes up. So I'm reaching 38, 40 states. That's how I got a national image. Uh, the same thing happens today, but now we have the, as I said, the Internet. We have streaming. Uh, you can go on Google. You can go on Alexa. You can go on Sano. You can go uh, on Siri. There are so many ways of receiving a local class national radio station. So as I said, I think I've achieved what I've been frustrated about. Well, I can hear it in your voice. You do sound very content with being back at WABC. And uh, I, I'm assuming you're probably broadcasting remotely because of the darn virus. Is that how that's working? Well, honestly, no. Uh, I did one that my uh, shows from my home upstate. We have a home upstate. I live in Manhattan, and I did my show from here. But, you know, uh, I went into WABC, and I felt very secure. The, the studios are two weeks old. They're brand new. Uh, everybody gets tested there. I feel very secure. Anyone around me uh, wears masks and keeps their distance. So I've been doing my show from the studio, which I intend to continue. As you and I well know, there is nothing better than the culture and the, and the feeling of being in a studio, a radio studio. There's something magical about it. I do have, in my contract, and I do have a facility, a Comrax machine, a little box that would allow me to broadcast from anywhere I want. So I have the uh, capacity of broadcasting from my home once again. But I'm going to stay in that studio as long as I'm comfortable. So I, I believe you as a broadcaster will understand that. I, I want to be in that room. 
and my uh, the studio has glass between the control room and myself, which is pretty nice and large in the. Uh, we're down in the center of Manhattan, and uh, it's a good feeling. And I, I think that relays to the audience. They know that it's something important that they're listening to. I, I, I could tell. Again, I saw I hear it in your voice. You sound content. You sound like you are where you're supposed to be. And we're going to be able to listen to you every Saturday night on WABC. We'll just Google that, listen live, and go from there. We're, we're talking to Bruce Morrow. If you don't know him as Bruce Morrow, you know him as Cousin Brucey. Uh, he has been uh, sort of the center of rock and roll here in the United States since the beginning. And uh, with his history, with his knowledge, we're going to ask Brucey after the break to come back and drop some names. Being a name dropper is an important thing, and I want to hear some of those names. So we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back after these words. Don't go away. back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight, and we're really happy to have with us tonight Cousin Brucey, Bruce Morrow, uh, who's been with rock and roll and a DJ for decades and knows everyone who is in the uh, the business of rock and roll over the years. Cousin Brucey, thank you for joining us. My cousin Nick, a pleasure, real pleasure being with you. Uh, I love what you do. I love that you communicate. That's, that's what we're all about. That's what we what all of us on the air hope to achieve. And you've done this for it, a while, and congratulations. Well, thank you. Yeah, those years have gone by really, really quickly, and you've done it a lot longer than I have. And and before the break, I, I mentioned that I'd like you to drop some names because there are people out there who may be hearing of Bruce Morrow, Cousin Brucey, for the first time here in Cleveland. And uh, if, if, they're, if they're just hearing about you now, they have to, to hear some of the incredible people who you've met. Um, so I, I know you started off before the Beatles, and you were involved oh, in, oh, yeah. in rock and roll. And who Quite are some of, of the people all, you actually worked with? And before I give you that, I'm very familiar with Cleveland because I've, I've been very involved with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In fact, I was one of the very first to broadcast from their studios uh, right, in the, right on the top floor of, of the Cleveland Museum. Uh so I'm very familiar uh, with Cleveland. Thank you. And I've always enjoyed it. Now, as uh, far as who I've been with, uh, you, it would be easy of you to name anybody, and I'll tell you, yes. I mean, we'll start uh, from Chuck Berry to Jerry Lee Lewis to the Everleys of the, uh, the of course, Elvis Presley. Elvis came with kind of a fun story. They brought him one day into my studio, and he wanted to come to thank me. And it, it was very tough for him. He couldn't go anyplace, couldn't walk around. So they, they uh, covered him with a blanket. He almost looked like a, a Native American chief when he came up to see me. And they oh. smuggled him into my studio, and he walks into the studio, and he uh, he said, I, I didn't know who it was. I it was all bundled up. And his uh, promotion guy said, this is Elvis. He wants to come and thank you. So I said, oh, Elvis? I got tongue-tied. And there he was. <laughs> takes the blanket off, unrolls the blanket. It looked like a, a beach, a bad beach movie. And he said, sir, sir, I just want to thank you, cousin, sir. He called everybody sir. He was very polite. That was kind of wild. Of course, the uh, Beatles, that's a major part of my career. I introduced them at Shea Stadium during that concert, and uh, Ed Sullivan and I had the opportunity of bringing them on stage, and that was the day that 
probably nobody, including the Beatles, heard them perform. And there, there was such a huge cacophony of, of sound. We have a, um, an electrical uh, utility in New York City called Con Edison, Consolidated Edison. Uh-huh. And I swear, right. they could have turned their turbines off that day because there was so much electricity and energy coming from Shea Stadium. And that was a, an amazing time, amazing thing. And someday you and I have more time. I'll tell you the story of what happened at that day. Great story. And then, you know, you've got, you got you end the show, I think, with Chad and Jeremy. I believe you were. Uh, we do. That That's right. Oh, well, we I had them on a, a show not so long ago. We did uh, a real good show from New York City, a remote. And of course, now I, I still see uh, I still see Chad quite a bit, and uh, and uh, Jeremy, and uh, see he is performing. I think uh, Jeremy is performing now with uh, Peter Asher every once in a while. Really he is. I, I heard good. the two of them are going out. Yeah, very good, and they are ex- excellent together. But Chad and Jeremy, a wonderful group and uh, a wonderful duo. And I was very sad to hear, you know, when they when he sort of had a take a little uh, a respite, he had to take off a little bit. And then you know you have Dave Clark Five, you have the whole British invasion. I've been, I was over in Britain many times, Great Britain, doing television shows, uh, getting ready for them with. Jerry and the Pacemakers. You know, if you ask me to drop names, I'm almost... I sure, almost feel no, I'm hearing these. I, I must feel embarrassed. Eric Clapton, uh, you, you know, once again, you name anybody, I have such a long list. Uh, they've been with because uh, I've been very privileged to help people. Leslie Gore, who we lost many, uh, several years ago at a very right. young age, she was a very dear friend. And her dear friend, Lou Christie. And uh, they keep coming up. Peter Asher's always with me. And uh, uh, we we just have so many people that come to visit me to recall the old days and play their music, and they give me good stories. So as I said, the show has become a lot of variety, a lot of talk, and uh, I just love that. I'm very proud of that. It's it has completely uh, changed. It's metamorphosed metamorphosed from uh, the old days uh, to what we have today. It's no longer, as I said, time and weather. It's a lot of fun. Well, well, it's so interesting because at various times you've been referred to as a radio icon and a national treasure, and and one of the most important things you have is your memory and the stories you can tell, because we listen to the music for all of us of the certain generations that enjoy the music of the '60s, '70s, and '80s and '50s. That uh, you know these, these years are moving by quickly, as we talked about earlier. And your mm-hmm. stories are precious, and we want to hear these because it adds real life and humanity to these these stories and songs that go back to our our earlier years. But uh, well, I know, you know even Nick, with yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say you, you're absolutely correct. That's very astute. Uh, almost every song that I play will have some kind of a some kind of a, a story attached to it. I don't do it to every single record. But I have stories for almost every one of them because they appeared with me at a place called Palisades Park, which I'm sure you're familiar ah, with. Ah, yes. Uh, of right, course. Freddie Boom Boom Cannon song. Exactly. And Freddie's on the air with me. So I'll, I'll play Freddie Boom Boom Cannon, Palisades Park, or Tallahassee Lassie, or Abigail Beecher, or one of those songs. And I have stories yeah. about him. You know, he's an artist. Uh, he's also a, a pretty accomplished artist. He loves to do portraits of the stars. And he keeps sending them to me. And I'll put them on my Facebook page. Right? So, as I said, every time I play something, something 
a synapse closes and I have a story because I've been with these people and they've come up and told me great stories. And I try to relate that. And you're right. It is going fast and we have to make sure this, this, these stories and this music is archived. I mean, it's part of a, an amazing multi-generation. Well, I, I do think those years were the, the, the best years. I remember back in college with the doors uh, being played in the dormitories at Kent State University. And I remember when I had my son, who was getting ready to graduate from high school, we went back to the Kent campus. And sure enough, somebody was playing the doors in a dormitory hanging with a speaker hanging out the window. That music, uh, for a lot of people, a lot of generations, is still considered very, very good music. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you something. If you listen to some of the music today, some of them be like, take Bruno Mars, take the Chicks. Take, you, know, you hear the 60s in the music. You know, I have a theory that I know is real true. It's scientific. That each decade borrows a lot of music and the feeling uh, from the decade preceding. So the 40s begot the 50s, 50s begot the 60s. So if you listen to music today, you'll hear a lot of 60s in that music, a lot of 70s and 80s. Everybody borrows a little bit. So each generation is very comfortable with the preceding generations. The Doors, I can tell you stories about the Doors. You wouldn't believe. I mean, amazing stories. Amazing stories. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, well, if you would tell it, I'd believe it. <laughs> we have a little more time. I would love to relate those to you. Well, we're going to have to do this again because as, uh, as as life goes on here, these stories become more important. And as we move beyond COVID, I, I know that this year, 2020, will be the COVID year forever. But uh, we're going to come back. We're going to be back to normal, and we're going to go back being able to enjoy all of these things. Nothing better than going to a live concert. And, and the artists from those days are becoming fewer and fewer. So we have to appreciate who yes. we have now as well. Exactly. I do a lot of... Uh... I did a lot of live shows, as did all of our, our great artists. Uh, I was talking to, like, Duke Fakir, founding member of the uh, Four Tops, just last week on the show. And he's, uh, you know, he would have been on the road every single day. He's still still doing it. And, you know, yet he can't go out like everybody. Everybody I talk to, they're just so frustrated. Tony Orlando, they just want to get out there, get back in front of an audience again. And like you say, we will. We'll get this. It's going to take some time. I mean, the magic bullet is not here. It's not going to be here no matter what anybody says. You listen to the scientists, and you know what's going on. You know, when I start my show, exactly. I, 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 very important, when I start my show, I say to the audience, Cousins, here's what we're doing. We're not talking politics tonight. I don't care what political side you're on. We're not talking. We're not talking COVID. We're not talking about that blankety-blank nightmare we're going through. I want this to be three or four hours of escape. And that's what we do. And I don't I don't accept anything at all when people want to talk politics or about COVID. So, you know, now, let, let's talk about escape. escape. Cousin yeah. Brucey, out of time. But thank you so very much. We're going to have to have you on again. Love, love listening to you. And uh, we talked about Chad and Jeremy. We end our show with Chad and Jeremy's song called Zanzibar Sunset. So thank you for recognizing uh, Chad and Jeremy. Cousin Brucey, thank you so much. And, and thank you to our listeners for listening tonight. We're going to be back here again next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Stay safe and healthy. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset 
Sat and drank my fresh mint tea with nothing to do until morning.